Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Marco, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, thank you all for your patience. And I am back today with part two of the Zach and Addie story. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend going back and listening there first because all of that basically is the buildup to what happens in this episode. Last time I left off talking about Zach, and after he had been in Iraq, he saw a lot of death and destruction. But the straw that broke the camel's back was when one of Zach's battle buddies, Boz, was killed in service. He was forever changed. Join me today as I bring you the conclusion of the story of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. Now, let's dig in. Kudos again to our very own listener and fan club member Myrtle for digging into this case for us and researching and writing this case and watching, watching all the videos and reading the book and doing all that jazz. The sources for this episode are identical to the ones I mentioned last time, and they include a book by Ethan Brown titled Shake the Devil Off. It is now November 2003 and the 527th redeployed back to Geisen. Zach and the other soldiers, they were happy to be home, but they felt frustrated that they left Iraq without any progress made there. Insurgents had increased their attacks and the recruiting of the new Iraqi police had declined. Lana was happy to have him home, but she recognized that Zach, he just wasn't the same. He wasn't the old talkative Zach and she could tell that he was very unhappy. He was angry about Boz's death and angry about not being able to go home to take care of his wife when she was so sick. Thankfully, Lana's health had actually started to improve. And by the first of the year, they were talking about where they wanted to be stationed next. Zach wanted to go to Hawaii and Lana just wanted to go wherever Zach was going. Along with the difference in how Zach acted, he was having physical problems too. He started having these really bad headaches. He had pain in his lower back and his shoulder, a painful rash on his back, and he even developed some shortness of breath that made him wheeze and cough at night, which affected his already troubled sleep. A few months later, in April of 2004, Zach failed his army physical fitness test when he deliberately underperformed the sit-up portion of the test. At this point, Zach was so disillusioned with the army that he didn't care that he received the disciplinary letter admonishing him for failing the test. And he got this letter because he was a non-commissioned officer at this point. He was supposed to set the example for all the younger troops in his unit. After this failure, he was assigned mandatory remedial physical training sessions to try to improve his score. Lana remembered actually watching Zach practice his sit-ups at home. And she noted that he did great. He didn't have any issues getting the highest score. But after the first failed attempt at the test, he went on to fail the sit-up portion again in May 
again in June and finally in July. This time he was threatened with administrative discharge if he didn't get his act together and pass the test the next time. On top of the stern warning, they removed him from training he was required to do to make rank. He was required to complete practice physical fitness tests six days a week. And despite the intense regimen of fitness tests and working out, he failed to perform enough sit-ups over and over and over again. The army finally, they threw their hands up and they made the decision to administratively discharge Zach for unsatisfactory performance. Although Zach's company commander recommended an honorable discharge, a division colonel submitted the paperwork with Zach's discharge characterized as general under honorable conditions. Now, no reason was given for the change. And while they sound similar to the ear, the reasons behind the two categories are vastly different. You see, an honorable discharge is what people get when they just leave the military without any issues. It means that the service member met or exceeded standards in their performance during their time in the military. For someone who receives a general discharge, aka under honorable conditions, this could mean that they performed satisfactorily but failed to meet all expectations of conduct for military members. And there are consequences to getting a general discharge. One is that the service member may lose their GI Bill benefits, which is the reason why a lot of people join the military is to have the military pay for college. Now, a general service characterization could even negatively affect Zach's ability to get a job in the civilian sector in the future. Zach was so embarrassed that he he was even discharged. And on top of that, he got a general discharge. He didn't even tell Lana or his mom what the details of his discharge were. He lied to his mom and told her that he was medically discharged. And when Lana pressed Zach for more information, he refused to answer her. And they got into a gigantic fight over it. Lana was so mad, in fact, that she packed up her bags and she left to New Orleans, leaving her kids behind in Germany with Zach. Zach spent the remainder of his time in Geisen going through all the necessary paperwork to separate from the army. Zach knew that leaving the army meant he was probably going to have to start bartending again when he got back to New Orleans. When Zach, Jackson, and Lily finally landed in New Orleans in December of 2004, Lana was there to pick them up. And it wasn't a happy reunion, but we've seen this before, right? She told Zach that she had actually started seeing an old boyfriend again. What in the world? Man, talk about adding insult to injury. Well, Zach ended up living in a hotel for a few months, but eventually he moved in with Lana and the kids. It wasn't a move to reconcile, however. It was more out of convenience. For a short time, Lana worked and Zach took care of the kids. He did the grocery shopping, the laundry, the cleaning, all that jazz. Eventually, Zach started looking for work again, and he quickly realized that there wasn't going to be much for him other than something in the service industry. He finally found a job at a bar called Hogs. It was a favorite local spot where the strippers went after the other bars closed. Zach was put on the 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. shift. And this is where he would meet the girl. You see, the bartender that followed Zach was Addie Hall. 
She was irritated at the dumb bar tricks that she watched Zach perform for the other ladies that came into the bar. She didn't have time for his silly shenanigans and she wanted to get to work. Besides bartending, though, Addie was a seamstress and a poet. Zach was immediately drawn to her like nobody's business. He loved the bohemian vibe that Addie gave off and he hung out after his shift so that he could get to know her better. Zach worked hard to charm his way into her good graces and she finally started opening up to him and he learned that she was originally from North Carolina. Adrienne Addie Hall was born on January 15, 1976, and she had a horrible childhood. When she was a little girl, she had been sexually molested by a family member. It was so bad that at one point she ended up being hospitalized for this abuse before she was 13 years old. She never graduated from high school because she wanted to sew, dance, and write poetry instead. She got out and away from her abuser as soon as she could. When she moved to New Orleans in the late 1990s, she lived in her car until she found an apartment. An old friend remembered Addie as being extremely smart and very talented at sewing and writing. And she had a wicked sense of humor, too. Besides being a jokester, Addie worked her tail off doing whatever jobs she could find to make rent each month. Sometimes she worked as a waitress and sometimes a maid at a wedding chapel, sometimes a bartender. A close friend of hers once bought a Christmas tree to her apartment and Addie cried. It was the first Christmas tree she had ever had in her life. She always made her apartment feel like a home. She had a knack for decorating and would transform a shabby looking place into a comfortable and clean home for herself. Her best friend, Margaret Sanchez, said that Addie had a dark side though. When she drank, she became mean and abusive to whoever was around even those who she was close friends with. She would be sweet one minute and then lay down a stream of curse words without batting an eye. Her friends knew to avoid her when she was having one of these drunk or angry spells. Margaret said that Addie was bipolar and when she was out of her lithium, her mood swings were uncontrollable. Addie had a few roommates along the way. One of them said that she was completely nuts and took way too many risks. For example. One night, she invited a cocaine dealer into the apartment. The dealer promised her some coke if she let him cut his stash at her place. When he was done, he handed her one tiny baggie of cocaine and Addie flew into a fit of rage and tried to get her roommate to help her roll the dealer. What the what? That's insane. Addie had a horrible track record with boyfriends too. She was, she was abused. She was beat up once so bad that the boyfriend he broke her shoulder and left her face almost unrecognizable. I guess it's easy to see why she had so many issues with men. Like many victims of abuse, when she was with a man, whether it was a friend or a boyfriend, she transformed them in her mind into her old abuser. But then Addie met Zach Bowen and things changed. Zach absolutely adored her. Her friends could see that he was totally falling for her. She seemed to calm down when he was with her. And in fact, he actually got banned from the bar when he wasn't on shift because he was spending way too much time there afterwards. And soon, something would happen that would transform their relationship 
into something more. I'm not sure if you can recall, but back in August of 2005, a massive, I mean massive hurricane was brewing out in the Gulf of Mexico and it was making headlines. As it churned and gained strength, the weather predictions all pointed to one thing. It was headed straight to New Orleans. Initially, the mayor didn't call for a mandatory evacuation of the city. He only highly encouraged people to leave. Zach and Addie decided that they were going to ride out the storm in the French Quarter. One thing Zach didn't think about was Lana and the kids. They weren't divorced and he was still legally married. Lana called him in a panic, wondering what he was planning to do with the storm looming on the city. And when he told her he was staying with Addie, Lana got mad. She was alone with the kids in their apartment and she was terrified. She wanted him to come be there with her and the kids. She even told him to bring Addie with him. She just didn't want to be alone. Zach was not budging in his decision, though. He was staying with Addie and that was that. He told Lana she and the kids were going to be just fine. And then he hung up on her. Yikes, that's pretty cold. Meanwhile, Katrina was upgraded from a Category 3 storm to a Category 4. And by Sunday, August 28th, it was upgraded to the highest category a a hurricane can be categorized. A Category 5 storm with winds in excess of 170 miles per hour. It was a freaking monster of a storm. And the city of New Orleans was right in the path of it as it headed for land. It was predicted to be the worst of the worst. And the mayor finally ordered the city to evacuate. Across the state of Louisiana, an estimated 1.8 million people packed up what they could and got the hell out of Dodge. In New Orleans, there were tens of thousands of residents left behind, either because they chose to ride out the storm voluntarily or because they just didn't have the means to get out of town, or they didn't have a car, they didn't have gas. Zach and Addie, they were hunkered down in their apartment, and it was well-stocked with plenty of alcohol that they grabbed from Hogs, the bar that they worked at. Across town, Lana made a mad dash to the grocery store and stocked up on essentials like canned food and water, and she readied her apartment for the arrival of Katrina. By the time night fell, the winds in the city were already being clocked at 100 miles per hour. The next morning at 6 a.m., Katrina made landfall. However, it didn't hit New Orleans directly like they had predicted, but it was pretty dang close, only 45 miles away from the city to the southeast. Back in New Orleans, it seemed as if they had dodged the biggest bullet ever when the storm missed and moved east instead of west. What they couldn't have predicted was the huge amount of rain and storm surge that Katrina brought with it when she landed. Most of New Orleans is actually below sea level, and the city is protected by 350 miles of levees that hold back Lake Pontchartrain and the Gulf of Mexico. Ten inches of rain fell. And then the storm surge hit, breaching 50 of the levees and allowing water to come flooding into New Orleans. By the afternoon of the 29th, 20% of the city was already underwater. Within 24 hours, 
80% of the city of New Orleans was covered in nasty bacteria-filled floodwater. Hurricane Katrina would be the single most expensive natural disaster to ever hit the United States, costing an estimated $108 billion, that's B billion with a B, dollars in property damage. The number of people who died is disputed, but at least 1,200 lives lost are attributed to the storm. One third of those deaths were due to drowning. Additionally, several hundred deaths were due to chronic illnesses that were aggravated by the storm. The French Quarter was in the center of the city and on somewhat high ground, so it was spared most of the flooding and the destruction that came with it. There was no power and the water coming from the pipes was rancid. Zach and Addie had the means to evacuate, but still chose to stay before and after the storm. During the days following Katrina, they spent their time cleaning up the streets from the wind damage around their apartment. They were making cocktails and cooking canned beans over an open fire on the street. They would sit in folding chairs outside of their buildings and share food with other holdouts that stayed in the French Quarter. Everyone would gather, cook, and share with each other. At night, they listened to music on a battery-operated boombox under candlelight. Early in the mornings, before the other people started moving around, Zach and Addie would go outside to greet the day. No one was around. They had the whole place to themselves, it seemed. And since it was empty, they would go out in the middle of the street and actually have sex. They felt like they were the only people in the world. The city was quiet and free from all distractions. They were able to spend all of their time focusing on each other and enjoyed this new found survivalist lifestyle. The Associated Press described the groups of people that stayed in the French Quarter during and after Katrina as tribes because of how they banded together and made things as livable as they could. Zach felt a sense of, I don't know, brotherhood with his tribe mates. It made him feel like he belonged to something again, like he had when he was in the 527th. Several news outlets produced stories on the French Quarter holdouts and Zach and Addie were featured in the New York Times in a big spread on the front page. Pictures of them circulated online showing them sitting in their folding chairs. Addie was wearing star-shaped sunglasses propped up on top of her head, and Zach was wearing a baseball cap and holding a glass of wine. Their arms were full of kittens from a litter they had rescued. The article talked about how Zach and Addie ensured that police did routine patrols around the neighborhood to keep them safe because when they would roll by, Addie would actually lift her shirt and flash her breast at them. <laughs> oh my. The newspapers and magazine features showed a lighthearted side of life in the French Quarter. Meanwhile, the rest of the city was in total squalor. Almost 30,000 people were stuffed into the makeshift shelter that was inside the Superdome. As their food supply dwindled, Zach and Addie, they rode their bikes outside of the relative safety of their neighborhood to try and accumulate supplies. Accumulating supplies is a nice way to say looting, by the way. Along the way, they passed by a body stuffed in a shopping cart that had been there for a few days. The store they went to was one they had gone to previously to find cans of food and bottled water. One night when they rode their bikes to the store, Addie went inside alone. There was still no power anywhere, so the store was pitch black. 
As Addie rounded a corner, she was grabbed by a man lurking down one of the aisles. The man clawed at her clothes and attempted to rape her. Addie fought like hell and she was able to get away from the man and ran out back to the safety of Zach's arms. She assured him that she was going to be okay. But at that moment, her childhood trauma bubbled up to the surface following the attack and the fun of living life as a survivalist quickly faded away. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Zach and Addie went to stay with another holdout, their friend Jack, and they were just there for a couple days. Now, Jack had a really nice condo with a grill. Now, Jack had scored a bunch of hamburger meat from a National Guardsman and got it all mashed up into burgers ready to be grilled outside. And it was a welcome treat after sustaining on nothing but canned food and ramen noodles. Once Jack put it on the grill, clouds of giant shiny green flies descended on the meat, covering it. Addie broke down in tears. It was all just too much. Living hand to mouth and the attempted rape, it all just came crashing down on her. Zach started to feel similarly, the emotional strain from the storm and surviving, just living through all of this. The 82nd Airborne from Fort Bragg They were deployed to New Orleans to assist the Louisiana National Guard troops with post-storm recovery. They came marching down the streets in formation, decked out in combat gear. They were going building to building, providing security and checking for survivors. Watching the soldiers, Zach felt a pang of regret and failure for the way that his time with the Army ended. Seeing men and women in uniform marching along, it could have triggered PTSD in Zach as well. He told their friend Margaret Sanchez that it reminded him too much of the desert. 
the 82nd Airborne, the National Guard, and the police from all over the country, they were patrolling the streets, making it feel like martial law. The holdouts were used to providing for themselves. Now the streets were full of uniforms, insisting they do what they were told to do. On September 6th, the mayor gave an order to the military police and fire department to tell everyone in the city they should evacuate, regardless if they were on private property or not. This included people who were sheltering in the Superdome and the tribes in the French Quarter. Zach, Addy, and a lot of the holdouts openly defied the order. They felt like they had been performing a service to the community by being there to clean up the streets and to provide a presence to prevent looting. Although they also accumulated supplies, as they called it, they felt they did it for survival, and that's different than looting something like an electronics store. At least that's how they felt. It seemed the police and the military may have supported the tribes in the French Quarter. They didn't harass them to leave when they came across them, so the holdouts continued to, well, hold out. The people who were sent away from the city during the post-storm evacuation were the ones who couldn't afford to put gas in their cars or didn't have cars at all. New Orleans had failed them. There was never a plan to move the almost 100,000 people who were in those situations while the storm approached. They were the ones who were trapped on the roofs of their houses, waving at the news helicopters during the most intense flooding after the levees broke. The people who evacuated before the storm were actually looked down on by some of the more hardcore holdouts like Zach and Addie. The evacuees left for their safety, but the holdouts felt like they had abandoned the city, like they were military deserters. Eventually, the water drained out and the levees were repaired. And on September 19th, the mayor announced that the city was ready for people to return to their homes. So they soon began to trickle in. After this, Zach and Addie felt they felt some sort of way about the end of their rendezvous. They would no longer have the streets all to themselves. And now they'd have to go back to reality, a world where paying bills is the norm and paying for food is expected. By late fall, a fraction of the population had returned to New Orleans. And when I say a fraction, I mean fraction. Only an estimated 60 to 80,000 people moved back compared to a pre-Katrina population of 455,000. Zach had moved into Addie's apartment permanently along with as many stranded kittens as they could find. They didn't just take in kittens though. For a time, they took in fellow survivalists who didn't have anywhere else to go. At the beginning of October, they threw a barbecue in the courtyard of their apartment building. One of their friends commented that Zach and Addie, they looked like they were completely in love with each other. Zach's mom remembered a phone call that she got from her son after the storm. Zach told her that he was in love for the very first time in his life. Yikes. I guess Lana didn't make the cut. I mean, she's only the mother of his two kids, but whatever. Lana wasn't too pleased with Zach's new life. She felt like he wasn't helping at all with his kids. She had to ride out the storm alone with the kids and then evacuate six hours away, all on her own. She had to take a job waitressing at an Applebee's while they were at the shelter. And Zach didn't send any kind of support for the kids or even contact her for the entire time they were gone. I mean, Lana actually thought that Zach was dead. 
But when she found out he survived Katrina, oh, she was going to give Zach a piece of her mind. She found out where he was living and she straight marched straight to his house with a baseball bat in hand. She demanded that he open the door and face the music, but he wasn't home. Addie was home alone and she refused to open the door. Can you blame her? Zach heard what happened and he meekly reached out to Lana and asked if they could meet. He wanted her to bring the kids, but Lana said, oh, hell no. But she was willing to meet him and they met at a bar in the French Quarter and had a very tense meeting. Lana was extremely bitter about his lack of support for her and the kids during and after the storm. And he was still mad at her for leaving him for another man when they were in Germany. So Zach told her he was willing to pay whatever she wanted. He just wanted to see his kids. Lana insisted that if the kids were going to be around Addie, she wanted to meet her first. And from the looks of it, it sounds like no one was going to win an argument between Lana and Zach. Zach still had a lot of stuff at Lana's place. He wanted to get it, but he didn't have a car, so he asked a friend to drive him over. When they got there, they discovered that the apartment had been looted while Lana was evacuated, and most of Zach's stuff, well, it was gone. Even his beloved drum set had been taken. The whole place looked like it had been ransacked. Zach gathered up what clothes remained, and thankfully, the specially made size 17 boots that the army had issued him, well, they were still there, so he took those too. He got back to the apartment and told Addie that the kids would be staying with them on a biweekly basis. Addie told him she was thrilled. She even went to Walmart and bought Jackson and Lily a couple of outfits so that they had something to wear when they visited them. Apparently, though, the excitement wore off because the first time she went with Zach to meet Lana and the kids, Addie sulked in the car and refused to meet any of them. When the kids went back to their place, she barely interacted with them at all. She preferred to go out into the bars and stay out until late. Then she'd come home and go straight to the bedroom with Zach and shut the door. As November neared, Addie was openly hostile towards the kids and she made Zach get a hotel room for them to stay on his weekends so that they didn't have to see Addie act negatively towards them. Zach and Addie's friends could see the writing on the wall. They had been perfect together right during the time of Katrina, when they were, I don't know, in this survival mode. But now the air was tense between them because they were snapped back into reality. After the new year, Addie got a new job at a bar where she was making some good money. And while Zach was still at Hogs, he picked up an additional gig delivering groceries on a bicycle. As 2005 came to a close, Zach and Addie hoped for a fresh start in 2006. Zach was the king of Bourbon Street, riding around making his deliveries on bicycle, and everyone knew who he was. Zach and Addie, they both had steady incomes, but didn't do anything to save for a bigger place or a car or anything like that. They spent all of their money on liquor and drugs, but it was a vicious cycle. When they were drunk and high, Addie would become toxic and her violent spells would start up again. Zach, of course, bore the brunt of her anger, but her friends caught the verbal abuse too. 
And after one too many fights with Addie, Zach packed up his stuff and he left. He told Addie he needed a break and maybe this time it would be permanent. He was going to get on a train and go to Oregon to see his dad and he was not taking Addie with him. Zach got on the train and he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He went to Oregon to be with his father. When he arrived in Portland, he told his family that he was done with New Orleans. His brother was pretty excited that he was back and he encouraged Zach to look at getting a job as a contractor in Iraq. Oh, hell no. There was no way in hell that Zach was going back to that hellhole. After Zach had been home for a few weeks, he started to miss his kids. He felt guilty for abandoning them and he secretly planned to return to New Orleans. He was out of money though, but one of his good friends in New Orleans purchased him a plane ticket. So while Zach is still in Oregon, back in New Orleans, Addie spent most of her time holed up in the apartment and she didn't go out. Meanwhile, Lana was pretty pissed that Zach had taken off and left her with the kids once again. Lana didn't want the kids to think that their dad was a deadbeat, though. So she made up lie after lie about Zach working for the Red Cross and then also that he was helping to rebuild the city. But at this point, she was sick of lying. Eventually, Zach did return to New Orleans and he ran straight back into Addie's arms. Their reunion was blissful, as it usually was. Zach and Addie, they actually holed up in their apartment for three whole days without going anywhere or talking to anyone else. But the bliss didn't last that long. Pretty soon, they were back into their old routines of going out and drinking and doing drugs, and then fighting like cats and dogs. By the end of July, they had split up yet again. And this began the cycle of breakup, get back together, breakup, Zach moves out, they make up, Zach moves back in. And it was like this for several months. It was as toxic a relationship as you can imagine. By August, things between Zach and Addie had escalated to the point where the police were getting involved. Addie was trashed one day and she got mad at Zach. She stormed out of the apartment with a gun and out on the street, she got into a verbal altercation with a stranger and she actually pulled the gun on him. When the cops were called, she took off back to the apartment where she ditched her jeans and changed into a nightgown thinking that it would make the cops believe she had been there all night. Of course, drunk people always think they're smarter than the cops, but they're not. The cops came in and they searched the apartment. And not only did they find the gun, but they found a bag of marijuana and two pipes as well. She was identified as the gun-toting lady and charged with aggravated assault and possession. When Zach got wind that she had been arrested, he refused to post her bail. Addie called her friends and she managed to scrounge up the money that she needed to, to get bail. It was $2,000 or something like that. Addie came back to the apartment and she reunited with Zach again. Now, I don't know about you, but I am exhausted thinking about how many times these two have broken up and gotten back together. But this is actually something that's very common in toxic relationships. By September, things were pretty bad. Addie was physically shoving Zach. During an incident where the cops were called to the apartment, Zach was arrested for possession of marijuana and Addie was not as hard on him as he was on her and she posted his $500 bail. The two of them were spiling out of control, drinking, drugs, and the fights, they were just never ending. But they weren't just doing, I guess you can say, soft drugs. 
they actually started abusing cocaine. And it went from a $20 habit to a $400 a week habit. It was bad. Unbeknownst to Addie, during their breakups, though, Zach had actually been paying a visit to some of the gay bars in the French Quarter. Now, it wouldn't have been a big deal, except that Zach met a guy and started dating him at the end of September. Now, he tried to keep the relationship on the down low, but Zach's coke dealer was also his boyfriend's coke dealer, and he realized something was up and confronted Zach about his sexuality, and Zach told him that he was bisexual. Zach tried really hard to keep Addie from finding out about his sexuality, but the word eventually got back to her, and Addie was not a nice person. Addie would ride her bike in front of the store where he did deliveries for, and she would shout out that she wished that she could have sex with a straight man, not a gay one, and she would shout gay slurs at him. Addie was vindictive. She even took Zach's phone and called every single woman listed and told them that Zach had AIDS. And then she deleted all of the phone numbers stored in his phone. Addie was angry, but her anger was compounded by stress over money. She had always lived paycheck to paycheck. At one point, the toilet in the apartment was jacked up and the landlord didn't want to fix it. It was like one thing after the other. Eventually, Addie realized she couldn't make it without Zach, primarily because he would help pay for the bills. So she called him. At the same time, Zach, though, he was tired of couch surfing, so he agreed to move back in. Goodness, just listening to this is like the codependence between these two is so real. In the documentary that I watched, Yura Jones, which is Zach's manager, she called their relationship graveyard love. And basically it means, and this is a quote, quote, if I can't have you, no one can. It's a relationship that continues and continues until one of them ends up dead, end quote. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Zach and Addie went apartment hunting on October 2nd, and they found a for rent sign on the gate at 826 North Rampart Street. 
It was an old Creole cottage built in 1829 with an apartment on the second floor. On the first floor, there was a voodoo spiritual temple and a shop. So they lied to the landlord, Leo Watermeyer, and they told him that their old landlord had doubled their rent after Katrina. They didn't want him to know about Addie's dispute with the landlord over the broken toilet. Now, the apartment was a one bedroom and the rent was $750 a month. The apartment actually overlooked a park that was across the street. It was just just the perfect little place for the two of them. And to add to their good fortune, they didn't even have to sign a lease. Leo, the landlord, gave them a good firm handshake, handed them the keys, and they were on their way. But as good fortune goes in this story, toxic love is toxic love. And two days later, on October 4th, Addie showed up at Leo's office demanding that he draft up a lease in her name only. Leo didn't care. He was happy to handwrite whatever, a six-month lease, a three-month lease, whatever, a one-year lease. So he did that. He wrote up a six-month lease on a yellow legal pad. And Leo signed, Addie signed, and that's it. It's a done deal. But not even 10 minutes later, Leo received a phone call from Zach asking him what in the actual hell was up with the six-month lease that excluded him. Now, Leo had no idea what he had gotten himself into. You see, after signing the lease, Addie had been on one of her moments and she barged upstairs and kicked Zach out. Now, Leo headed over to the apartment and found the two of them standing in the stairwell. Addie blurted out that Zach had been cheating on her with a man. Now, Leo was like, what in the actual hell? This is so awkward. Like, is there any way that I could just disappear right about now? Leo wasn't much help to the couple, so they went inside to continue their fight about whatever. Zach was super mad because he had just coughed up not only the first month's rent, but also the deposit. And now she was kicking him out again. What made it worse is that he had promised Lana that he was going to have a place where he could spend time with Jackson and Lily. Now what was he going to do? At this moment, Zach felt hopeless and all of the feelings of failure, they all began to weigh on him one by one. Not graduating from high school, getting Lana pregnant when he was only 18 years old, not saving that little girl in Bosnia, the little boy that was killed in Iraq, Boz's death in Iraq, his intentional discharge from the army, his failed marriage with Lana, his inability to care for Jackson and Lily, and all of the endless low-end jobs. Now, he might actually be homeless. It all just came crashing down on him. Around midnight, the fight turned physical, and within an hour, Zach placed his hands around Addie's neck. Then he squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until she was no longer breathing. His rage was boiling over. He hated her, but worshipped her all at the same time. After she was already dead, he actually took Addie's body to the bedroom and he had sex with her several times. He grabbed Addie's journal and then he just started writing in it. He knew he had to do something with the body, but he passed out drunk before he could figure it out. He woke up around 6 a.m. and He actually went to work at the grocery store. His friend Capricio saw him there and asked him if he was okay because I'm assuming one doesn't look so good after they killed their girlfriend, right? But Zach was a hot mess. 
He hadn't shaved and he had a vacant look in his eyes. He told Capriccio that he and Addie had broken up and that Addie had taken some of his money and moved back to North Carolina. You see, Addie had threatened to move back to North Carolina before, so it wasn't too far of a stretch when Zach told him that. After work, Zach went over to his friend Jack's condo and told him the same exact story, and he told him that he wanted to take a trip far east. He could tell that Zach was stressed out, and when Zach told him that Addie had left, Jack actually doubted this story. He knew that Addie loved New Orleans, and it would be kind of out of character for her to just leave like that. Zach left Jack's condo and went back to the apartment on Rampart Street and started to clean up. This next part, I'm just going to give you a fair warning, gets pretty graphic. So listener discretion is advised. Zach took Addie's body to the bathroom. He placed her in the bathtub and he started to meticulously cut her body up. He got a saw and cut off her feet, hands, and head. He gave her head a rough haircut and put it in the oven. And then he placed her hands and feet into a pot of water on the stove. As he was cutting Addie's limbs and body, he got more and more drunk. He filled the tub with water and then went to bed and passed out. Zach had the whole weekend off. He spent most of the weekend bar hopping and spent time with various girls in the French Quarter. On Sunday, October 8th, he realized that he had told Lana that he would take the kids that day, but he had a huge problem. He couldn't do that with Addie's butchered body parts all over the apartment. Zach called Lana and asked her to bring the kids to the grocery store where he worked. Zach knew that Lana would be hella mad about him not taking the kids that weekend. So he told her he was going to bring $600 in back child support that he owed her. Of course, that was incentive enough. They met at the store and Zach gave the kids money to go inside to buy some candy and soda. He stood outside with Lana and explained to her that he wanted to fix the apartment up before he had the kids over. So he wanted to take them the following weekend instead. Lana was like, yeah, whatever. She was sure that Addie was not going to let the kids come over at all. But Zach assured her that Addie wasn't going to be a problem. Lana agreed to the schedule change and she loaded up the kids, fistful of candy, and she headed back home. Zach went back to the apartment and continued to work on Addie. That night, he cut off her arms and legs and put them in roasting pans in the oven. Then he went to bed and passed out. Hours later, he woke up to a terrible smell coming from the kitchen. He turned off the stove and went to work. It would be the last day anyone would see him at the store again. Zach worked until 9 p.m. that night And then he went back to the apartment. It was when he got home that night that he looked around at what he had done and he was just overcome with self-hatred when he saw Addie's mutilated body. He wrote in her journal that he was horrified at his lack of remorse. He decided that he was going to quit his job, take all of the money he had on hand, blow it on trying to be happy and then kill himself. He had $1,500 in cash to his name and threw himself a wild party for one. He guzzled whiskey, snorted coke, and dropped hundreds of dollars on lap dances. He went back to the French Quarter strip clubs on Tuesday where he ran into a friend who asked about Addie. 
and he told the same tale. Then, as he got deeper and deeper into the bottle, he realized it was October 10th, his anniversary with his wife. Because remember, he and Lana never divorced. So what does Zach do? He stumbles to a payphone to call his wife and wish her a happy anniversary. Now, Lana answers and she's like, what? He tries to convince her to come out for a drink, but Lana declines and Zach proceeds to not so kindly inform her that she is still his wife. He then tried to convince her to come get some money from him, but she promptly hung up. The next day, on October 11th, Zach continued his party of one. He didn't show up to work on time, and when he did, he was drunk. So he went on another bender with a friend, even confiding in him, quote, I'm not who everyone thinks I am. I have a persona that I present, end quote. That weekend, he even bartended at a close friend's party. It had been a week since he killed the alleged love of his life. And throughout the week, he dismembered her little by little, and he was still out living the dream. Or so it seemed. After all the parties were over, he went back to his apartment to where Addie's corpse was, and he was now at the bottom of the worst depression he had ever been in. He took a lit cigarette and he burned himself all over his body. He wrote in Addie's journal, quote, I didn't contact any of my family, so that'll explain the shock. This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. Every last one of these aspects I failed at. Hence, the 28 cigarette burns, one for each year of my existence, end quote. And Zach was not short-winded. He then added to his extensive suicide note, writing about all of the alcohol, drugs, and strippers that he had been spending his money on. He recorded in excruciating detail how he murdered and dismembered Addie's body and described his inability to dispose of her remains. He wrote, quote, she stole this apartment. If you ask Leo Watermeyer, he'll explain that. She wouldn't shut the f*** up. So I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick, end quote. He went on to chronicle his perceived failures in life. The list included names of his friends, jobs that he held, the army, his marriage to Lana. I mean, he ended the letter with a taunt to police. Above the bathtub, he spray painted Lana's phone number. In the living room, he spray painted, I love her. And it's assumed that that's a reference to Addie. On another wall, the words, look in the oven, and then somewhere else, call Lana Bowen. And he even wrote, total failure. And a haunting final message that read, help me stop the pain. When Zach was done writing, he asked a friend to go party with him. But when his friend declined, Zach walked to the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel. He calmly walked through the lobby and rode the elevator all the way to the top. There was a bar and a pool there, and he spent the entire afternoon and evening having drinks poolside. At about 8.30 p.m., he walked to the side of the building and stepped off the edge, falling seven floors, roughly 70 feet to his death when he hit the roof of the parking garage. This takes us back to the beginning of this story. 
The police were called. They found the note, the dog tags, and the keys in his pocket. And they dispatched detectives to the apartment based on the instructions in the note. That night at 10 p.m., the police arrived at 826 North Rampart Street to search for Addie's body. With Leo Watermeyer's help, the detectives gained entry to the apartment. As the detectives began their initial examination of the scene, they noted that there wasn't any visible blood and there was no smell of death. Based on the note, they knew that Zach had killed Addie on October 5th and it was now the 17th. 12 days had gone by, but why no death smell? They realized that the air conditioner was running on full blast. Zach had kept the apartment cool, which helped keep Addie's body from reaching the point where it emanated that putrid smell that happens when human bodies break down. But the apartment wasn't clean. It was littered with empty beer cans, cigarette ashes, and overflowing ashtrays. Along with the notes that Zach had spray painted on the wall, he had also painted a large silver arrow that was pointing at the stove. In Addie's journal, they began to read Zach's rambling suicide note. After they read how he had strangled her, the note went on to say, quote, Then I was posed with the question of how to dispose of the corpse. So I got drunk and passed out next to her on the futon, end quote. He then talked about how he got up and went to work the next day, and he figured out how he would get rid of the body. The note went on, quote, I figured that I should cook the corpse to ease the separation of flesh from bone and gradually dispose of the rest in various ways, end quote. But Zach had never finished the job of getting rid of her body parts. Like a scene from a real-life horror movie, they found Addie's head in a pot on the front burner. Her hands and feet were in another pot on the back burner. And inside the oven were her legs and arms and roasting pans. Her torso was wrapped in a black trash bag and stuffed in the refrigerator. The next day, October 18th, Lana received a call from the coroner's office asking if she was the wife of Zachary Bowen. When she answered that she was, the voice on the other end bluntly told her that Zach was dead. Lana was floored. She asked them what happened, and they told her that he had jumped off a building and that he had killed his girlfriend. <gasps> Lana gathered her strength, and she called Lori, which is Zach's mom, to break the news to her. Lori, in turn, called Zach's brother, Jed, who had just returned from a tour in Iraq a few days before. Jed and his wife, Tanya, they turned on the computer and they started reading all of the details about the murder and suicide. And all that Jed could do was utter two words, quote, me, end quote. Later that day, the police released Zach and Addie's names to the press. The chief of police noted that despite the condition that Addie's remains were in, it didn't appear as though Zach had eaten any part of her body. But despite his reassurance, some news outlets reported that there was evidence of cannibalism. The story was being broadcast on all of the local news channels, and it had actually been picked up by a few major outlets like the AP News and Fox News. Jed and Tanya, they reached out to the police and coroner trying to get more information about what happened, but the agencies remained tight-lipped. To compound an already heartbreaking and stressful time, they realized that Lana was completely overwhelmed with what had just taken place and she wasn't capable of taking care of her kids. 
So Jed and his wife ended up taking the kids until Lana could figure out her life. Unfortunately, Lana didn't handle things in the healthiest of manners, which I don't blame her. She went on to get a DUI and the DUI resulted in probation. And after that very close call, Lana realized it was time to get her life straight to have her kids back. Wisely, Lana decided that Jackson and Lily were going to need professional help to get through their trauma. You know, the trauma of losing their father. Jackson and Lily were just eight and six at the time. The psychiatrist advised her that they should be told all of the circumstances behind Zach's suicide and Addie's murder. Lana thought they were a little young, but he was the doctor. So Lana did as she was told. And she went on to tell the kids everything, all of the details that an eight and six year old do not need to know. After that, Jackson retreated into himself, becoming quiet and introspective. And Lily, little Lily, started drawing pictures of Zach falling from a building and she had a constant tummy ache. Lana recognized the errors in her way and that the psychiatrist had given her terrible advice, but the damage was done. Zach's mother and brother decided to have Zach cremated. His ashes stayed with Lana in New Orleans. Addie was also cremated, but sadly, her ashes laid unclaimed for months. Finally, at the end of winter, her family claimed her urn. Zachary Bowen was never diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but like so many of our combat veterans, he was deeply affected by his experiences during his deployments. Once a proud member of a prestigious unit, the 527th MP Company, he experienced horrors on his combat tours in Kosovo and Iraq. He dug up mass graves in Kosovo, became close with children that were slaughtered for talking to Americans. And to top it off, he experienced the loss of a close battle buddy in Baz. And he survived Hurricane Katrina, seeing its destruction. It's probably safe to say that all of these things had a negative effect on him. I cannot excuse his actions. They were horrid. He was a tortured soul, however. This case involved issues of domestic violence and suicide. So if anyone is struggling with thoughts of suicide, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Veterans in crisis, they also can reach the Veterans Crisis Line by calling the same exact number. That's 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. You can also send a message to 838-255 to reach a crisis responder. Support is free and confidential. If you or anyone you know is suffering from domestic violence in any form, there's support for you too. You can get support by reaching out to the hotline. The National Domestic Hotline can be reached by calling 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can just text START to 
That story I just told has been in the making for two years because one of my listeners recommended it. And I just want to thank Myrtle for going through the book, Shake the Devil Off. And if you're interested in hearing more of the details, then go check out that book. But listen, wait, just when you think the story was over and it couldn't get any stranger. Do you remember that person that I had mentioned? Her name was Margaret Sanchez. She was Addie's best friend. She was one of the main people interviewed for the Addie and Zach documentary on ABC called Final Witness. Well, Miss Margaret was indicted in 2012 on murder charges for the stabbing and dismemberment of a French Quarter dancer. What the what? Well, that story is going to be coming up in a future fan club bonus episode. So if you're interested in hearing it, head on over to patreon.com slash military murder and check out all the different ways that you can explore getting at least, at least 14 bonus episodes right now. You can find me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. And don't forget to join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my boot camp and higher fan club members. The show's executive producers are Falcon 13, Nicole G, Alicia H, Tina S, and Ryan R. Thank you all so much for your continued support. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Podcast.